In Matthew chapter 6, we are in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And Christ is giving unique instructions on a unique topic here. What he has chosen to focus on kind of in the middle at the heart of this sermon is he is examining the issue of the heart. He's looked at the lives of Pharisees, the lives of of the religious leaders at that time. And what he has noted, what he knows about them is that they have done a lot of righteous things. Their acts of righteousness are really good. But what Christ knows that may not be perceived by the rest of the population is that the reasoning behind their righteous acts isn't so righteous. In fact, he says, don't be like the Pharisees. For they do their acts of righteousness so that other people notice them. They do their acts of righteousness to be seen by men. And Christ has has scary words. He says, for those that have done that, They've received their reward in full. They had a desire, a desire to be seen by men, a desire to be noticed. And they were. People looked at them. They saw them. They saw their acts of righteousness. They may have applauded their acts of righteousness. And what Christ says is, yeah, they got a reward. They may have received the applause of men. And that's all they'll ever get. Because their heart was not righteous, even though their acts were. And it's in the midst of of this theme that Christ is hammering that we receive specific directions on the issue of prayer. There are certain times in scripture where you you have to dig a little bit. You have to work hard to apply what is being said in scripture. And then there's, there's other places where the directions are clear. They're just crystal clear. Christ says, this is what you need to do. This is what, how you have to do it. And this is one of those texts. Tonight we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Some of you guys are like me. I am officially diagnosed as being directionally challenged. Now... That is, that is an embarrassment and, and a humility aspect that I have to wrap my arms around every single day because my wife has been incredibly gifted in the area of directions. And so when we're driving, I generally don't know where I'm going. I generally don't know where I'm turning. Like we're driving to church on Sunday morning. We live right over there. And she's like, turn right now. I just, I, I, I'm, I struggle with directions. And when we come to, to a text like this, it is, it is a blessing For Christ to just be straightforward, for him to be clear, for his directions. You you cannot miss what Christ is saying here. There is no denying the application of what we're going to look at in this text. What Christ is going to do, he's going to give us straightforward directions. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to guess. He's going to tell us how to pray. He's going to give us step-by-step directions on how you and I should communicate with God. This is unique territory in scripture because we know that Jesus Christ is God. And so what we have here is really God telling us how to communicate to God. It's a really cool text is Christ just breaks down. You want to know how to pray? This is how you pray. Christ has been hitting this topic of prayer since verse five. And what he's done is he's looked at the hypocrites, the Pharisees. He's looked at the Gentiles. And what he's done is he's told them how to not pray. He said, look, when you pray, don't go out on the street corners. Don't do what you do to be seen by men. Don't use meaningless repetition. Don't do what the Gentiles do. And so the disciples are sitting there and the crowd around him is sitting there and they're wondering, okay, this is what I don't do. I don't, I don't necessarily do it in public to be seen by men. I don't use meaningless repetition. So how, 
How, how do I pray? And Christ answers that question. Specifically and directly. Starting in verse 9. You can follow along in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 6 verse 9 says, Pray then, Jesus speaking, in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may notice that there is a unique form of communication in this text. As Jesus is instructing us how to pray, it's interesting how he tells us to pray. And that what you and I are to do, according to what Jesus says in this text, is you see commands to God from us. When you look at that, there are literal demands from the mouth of the prayer to God. And it's really an interesting form of communication. Almost as if the believer is telling God what to do. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Don't lead us into temptation. Your kingdom come. In other words, bring your kingdom. Do your will. Direct commands from the mouth of the believer to God. And it may seem at first even disrespectful. What we see here is a a form of speech that, that we would call an imperatival request. And what it is, is while it's phrased as a command, it's understood to be a request. It's understood for us to be asking God to work in a specific way. It's kind of like when you were in... And like fourth grade and, and Valentine's Day came up and you, you had someone that you wanted to ask to be your Valentine. And so you went up and, and what's the phrase? You say, be mine, right? And, and be mine could be interpreted as a command. But we know it's not, right? It's a desperate request. Please, please, please be my Valentine. It's not a command. It's a request. And this is much the same way. We are not commanding God to ask in a certain way, but through the specific form of speech, requesting that he does his will. And so tonight, we are going to look at five topics of biblical prayer. Through these imperatival requests, we look at at five topics that God tells us to pray about. It's important to remember that this is not a prayer that's supposed to be methodologically repeated. This is not the prayer that you should recite word for word every day. Rather, Christ is giving us guidance in how we should pray. He is telling us, use this as as a general guideline for prayer. He says, pray in this way. Pray like this. This is a model, a sample prayer, if you will. We know that we're not supposed to just repeat this prayer over and over because just two verses prior, Christ condemned meaningless repetition in our prayer. Rather, we are to use this as a guide and a sample to direct us in our prayer lives. So tonight we look at five topics of biblical prayer. The first topic of biblical prayer is that we are to pray for the glory of the Father. We are to pray for the glory of the Father. In verse 9, We read, Jesus says, our father who is in heaven. That is, that's simply the address. That's writing the the name and the address on the envelope. Our father who are in heaven. And then we see this first topic. Hallowed be your name. We're probably all pretty familiar with this prayer. We're probably pretty familiar with that request. Hallowed Hallowed be your name. 
But I found that, that I wasn't really familiar with the meaning of what all that was implied in praying that prayer. We have to ask ourselves, what does this mean? When we say, hallowed be your name, what does that mean? We got to do a, a quick language lesson to really understand what this is. That word hollowed is rooted in a noun that you, that you may recognize in the Greek language. It's, it's the word hegios. Hegios is the word for holy. Revelation chapter four says that God is hegios, hegios, hegios. Holy, holy, holy. And what this word is in this verse is it's that, that hegios, that holiness word that's turned into a verb. It's a verbal. And so if we were to turn the word holy directly into a verb, we would, we would walk away with be holy. But there's another nuance to this word that is essential to its meaning and its implication for us. And that is that this verbal is a passive verb. Now, passive means that the subject is being acted upon. Okay. In other words, if I were to tell you, go eat, that would be an active command. You go eat. If I told you, go be eaten, that would be a passive command and a completely different meaning. Passive means that you are being acted upon. So we take this, this word that means holy in the verbal form. It means be holy. And then passively, our language doesn't do this really well because it would be, be, be holied or be, be sanctified. Our language doesn't translate this very well. And so what has been used to, comp, to, to really grasp what this word is saying is we have said, hallowed be your name. And an understanding of that is for God to be holied. The request is, may you be treated as holy. May you be respected as holy. May you be revered as holy. It's an interesting request that we are Calling God to be treated as holy by mankind. So the one who prays this understands. God, you are, you are great. You are glorious. You are holy. And the prayer is, may you be worshipped as the holy one that you are. May you be treated as the holy one that you are. We need to ask ourselves, who is, who is supposed to recognize God as holy? And the answer to that is all men. All men are to recognize that he is holy. It's almost as if we're, we're praying in this prayer, Romans 14, 11. God, may every knee bow, may every tongue confess how great, how glorious, how holy you are. May you be recognized as a holy God by all men. This is the ultimate praise that God should receive. This is how Christ kicks off this prayer with, with the ultimate praise to give God. I mean, my mind can't help but go to Isaiah chapter 6 and, and to Revelation where in, in the throne room we see angels. And, and what they're crying is, holy, holy, holy. That's the praise that God is receiving in heaven right now. And so the prayer is for that echo, that refrain, that praise that God is receiving in heaven for that to be done now. For that to be done by men, hallowed be your name. May your name be treated as holy. Make no mistake, one day that will happen here on earth. God's name will be hallowed. Scripture says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the Old Testament, God said, I will sanctify my great name. That's God's name being hallowed. That's hallowed be your name. 
And even though it's going to happen, you and I are to pray for it. We are to ask for it. And you may ask why. Why are we directed to pray for something that scripture tells us we know is going to happen? I think what's happening here is that in praying this prayer, we are aligning our desires with God's. We know that God's desire ultimately is that he be glorified. And so what we see in this prayer is that our desire lines up with God's desire. His desire that his name be made great. His desire that his name be glorified. His desire to be treated as holy. That's our desire too. Hallowed be your name. So I ask you, do you pray for the glory of God? Is that, is that part of your prayer life? One thing that I've learned as I've studied this topic of prayer is that how I pray shows where my heart is. And so when I ask this question, am I praying for the glory of God? I'm asking a heart question there. Because if the glory of God is absent from your prayer life, then what I would submit is that the glory of God isn't that high on your priority list. Because what you pray shows where your heart is. And so what we are commanded to do here by Christ, what we are directed to do is to set our desires on the glory of God. That we pray with all sincerity, hallowed be your name. So I need to evaluate myself. We need to evaluate ourselves and say, How important is the glory of God to me? Is this part of my prayer life? Because what I pray shows a significant aspect of my relationship with God. It shows a significant aspect of my heart. We are to pray for the glory of the Father. We could talk about this one verse the rest of the night, but Jesus has much more to say in this text. The second topic of biblical prayer that we see here is in verse 10. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These two phrases can really be summed up into one theme. What we're looking at in the second topic of prayer is that we are to pray for the coming of the kingdom. We are to pray for the coming of the kingdom as directed by Christ in verse 10. Those two phrases, your kingdom come, your will be done is really a comprehensive picture of Christ's second return, the establishment of his kingdom and his reign on earth. And it's interesting that you and I, we are to pray for the return of Christ. We are to pray for the establishment of his reign. That picture of of let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is a picture of the kingdom. That, that God's will being enforced in heaven now. That it would be the exact same way here on earth. That is the kingdom. That is your kingdom come. And you and I are directed to pray. For the coming of the kingdom. The kingdom was near and dear to the hearts of Christ's audience. In fact, the kingdom is one of the main themes through the Sermon on the Mount. The whole Sermon on the Mount is really a picture of what a true kingdom member looks like. Someone that is going to dwell in the kingdom, a true believer, what that person looks like is outlined in the Sermon on the Mount. And so this theme of the kingdom has run through this sermon. And here Christ is showing how a true kingdom member should pray. So you and I as members of the kingdom... If you are a believer, you are a member of the kingdom. We are to pray that it comes. We are to desire the kingdom. We are, we are to be in a position here on earth where we cannot wait for the coming kingdom. We desire it. We look forward to it and we pray for it. We say, God, bring your kingdom. Bring it. 
Bring it to earth. Establish your reign. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But for many of us, this topic is nowhere to be found in our prayer lives. Why is that? Why don't we pray about the coming of the kingdom? I think that there, there may be a couple options here. One, we may just not feel that the, the coming uh, of Christ is, is imminent. We may not feel that, that, we may feel that it's way far off and that our praying for it doesn't change anything. The imminence of, of Christ's return is, we don't have time to look at it now, but it's clearly supported through scripture. We don't know when he is returning, but we live as if it could be at any moment. And we desire, here's what's key here. We desire that he comes quickly. That is to be our desire. The end of Revelation, the book closes down. And the last prayer that we see there in that book is is John writing. He says, he closes everything that he says. And he says, Lord, come quickly. Come. That was his desire. Even in the epistles, we see the same thing. That sometimes Paul would close a book writing, Lord, come quickly. So we have to ask ourselves again, is, is this my desire? Is my desire that the kingdom come? Because there's another option, another reason that we may not be praying for the coming of the kingdom. And that is that we just love this life more. We're not really sure if we want the kingdom to come. At least not quite yet. I've, I've experienced this at times that there were certain things in life that I wanted to experience yet. I remember one of my favorite things when I was a kid was to go to a, a, a theme park called Cedar Point in Sandusky, Ohio. And, and I remember one of the nights before we went, I heard a sermon on Christ's return. And I remember going home thinking, you know, I hope he doesn't come tonight. I'd really like to experience tomorrow first. I think sometimes that can be a picture of how we treat the coming of Christ. I, I want to get married first or, or I want to have a child first. I want to see what it feels like to be a mom or a dad or, or maybe eventually what it feels like to be a grandparent. I want to experience different sides of life. I want to know what it, I want to live just like a couple weeks in retirement. I want to feel what that's like. And then Christ can come after I've experienced what I want to experience here on earth. But what Christ says is that we are to pray for the coming of the kingdom. See, the problem with that mentality is that when you say, you know, what, I want to experience one of these things first. What you're doing is you're putting that thing before Christ on your priority list. You're saying, okay, Christ come, but, but marriage first or, or child first or retirement first, something first. And what you've done is you have replaced the desire that you're supposed to have for Christ with something on this earth. We are to pray for the coming of the kingdom. Christ establishing his reign on earth, his presence with us, dwelling in that kingdom, we are to desire it. We are to pray, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Christ has more to say. Moving on into verse 11, Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. The third topic of biblical prayer that we see represented here is that we are to pray for the provision of our needs. We are to pray for the provision of needs. 
This is a really interesting one. Christ says, give us this day our daily bread. It's a simple request. What, what, what is he asking? What is he directing the disciples, the crowd around? What's he directing them to ask for? Feed us. God, give me food. Give me what I need to get through the day. Jesus says that they were to pray for that regularly. It's interesting. They were supposed to pray for food. They were supposed to pray for the provision of their needs. They needed food every day. They were to pray for it. And it's really easy to look at this text and think, man, I can't imagine having to pray that prayer. God, give me, give me food. I don't know where my next meal is coming from. What these people were being directed to do was to rely completely on God. That's what this prayer is. It's setting your, it's relying everything you have on God, even your food. His most immediate crowd was his disciples, most of whom were fishermen, right? I mean, they, they had given up fishing their means of getting food. To follow Christ. They didn't know where their next meal was coming from. They followed Christ giving up their job, which was food. So they're praying. They're saying, God, I, I don't know where my next meal is coming from. Provide. Please provide for us. The crowd around, most of them would have been in the lower level of society at that time. Most of them would have had the same dilemma. They don't know where the next meal is coming from. They don't know how they're going to make it through the next day or through the next week or through the next month. All they can do is rely on God. And so he tells them to pray like this. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I'll pray that. God, provide for my needs. I will rely on you to take care of me. And it's really easy to look at this text and say, and I, I can't imagine living in that time. I can't imagine praying that prayer. Because we look at our lives and most of us have a closet full of clothes. Most of us have a pantry full of food. Most of us have a roof over our head. Our basic needs, for the most part, they're met. We don't really have that much to worry about. And because our basic needs are met, we don't pray this prayer. This is where this one gets a little bit tough. Because I think in not praying this prayer, we're completely missing the point of this verse. I think that this verse still applies directly to you and me today. It's easy to look at it and say, man, I can't believe that they had to pray this prayer. They didn't know where the next meal was coming from. They had to have complete faith in God. We're so blessed and I have to pray this prayer. It's easy to kind of let those thoughts run through your mind as you're reading this. But if you think that this prayer only applies to those that don't know where the next meal is coming from, then you don't understand Christ's third topic of biblical prayer here. You don't understand the theme that he is trying to drive home. You see, the prayer, give us this day our daily bread, is not a declaration of poverty. It's not. Now, a lot of the people around would have been poor. A lot of people around didn't know where the next meal is coming from, but it's not a declaration of poverty. What it is, is it's a declaration of inability to provide for ourselves. It's a declaration of ultimately relying on God to provide for my basic needs. The one who prays this prayer realizes I have nothing except what God has chosen to give me. And guess what? 
that's still true. You have nothing except what God has chosen to give you. See, we we don't tend to think this way. Those of us who have a pantry full of food, we never once think about asking God to give us food because we already have it. In our minds, we've already earned it. We already have it. Why would I ask for something that I already have? But what we forget is that God is the one that gave it to you. The pantry full of food is only full because God allowed you to have a pantry full of food. You can be rich and pray this prayer. Because that pantry full of food, that roof over your head, that closet full of clothes is not a given. It's a gift from God. But we tend to bring before God the things that we can't control. At least the things that we think we can't control. So we bring sicknesses and diseases before God because we're like, I, I just, there's nothing I can do there. I'll bring this to God. God can handle that because I can't. And what we think is that putting food on the table, we are in control of. And the news flash for us here in this text is guess what? You're not even in control of the food that you're putting on the table. The only reason you have it is because God chose to give it to you. The only reason you have it is because of his grace. And we forget that so easily. It's all in the hands of God. It's only what he has chosen to give to us. And if you ever doubt that, t- talk to Job. I mean, he, he had all of his needs basically provided for, right? He would have been in a similar position to us where not really worried about taking care of the basic needs. And God allowed it all to be taken away. I think we need to return to this prayer. What we've done is we've become self-reliant. We don't rely on God to take care of our basic needs. We don't pray this prayer because in our minds, we're taking care of our basic needs. And that's completely wrong. Why do you think Christ said it's so hard for a rich man to enter heaven? It's because the rich man doesn't tend to rely on God. The the rich man tends to think I'm providing for my needs. I have most of my life under control. I'm not desperate. Whereas the poor man, he's there and he's praying, God, I don't know where the next meal is coming from. I need you to provide. And you know what? God does. He does provide. You have a biblical promise that God will take care of all your needs. Philippians 4. I think that we need to return to this prayer. And start praying, God, please continue to provide for us as you so faithfully have. You know what? He will. He may not always make it easy, but he'll provide for your needs. You know what that draws us to when he provides for our needs? What do we do? Then we turn around and we thank God for what he has provided. But when we become self-reliant, we lose sight of that. If you don't bring your needs before God, then you are placing your trust in yourself. And what we need to know clearly throughout scripture, God desires that we bring our needs Before him. 
He cares. Not even a sparrow can fall without his knowing about it. He cares. He will provide. He will, he will give us what we need. Bring your needs before him. We are to pray for the glory of the Father. We are to pray for the coming of the kingdom. We are to pray for the provision of needs. And the fourth topic of biblical prayer that we see here tonight is that we are to pray for the forgiveness of sins. We are to pray for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 12 says, as Christ is directing us to pray and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's interesting terminology here. Jesus uses financial terminology. Forgive us our debt. And maybe wrapping our minds initially upon what Christ is saying here may be a little bit difficult. Because our debts aren't something that we would naturally associate with, with sin. But Christ uses the words interchangeably here. What, what, what is a debt? A debt is something that we owe someone. Something that we owe. That's, that's what a debt is. It's a financial term. So the prayer here is, forgive us what we owe you. Forgive us what we owe. Directed at God. God, forgive me what I owe you. So we have to ask ourselves, what do we owe God that needs to be forgiven? The answer to that question is, it's, it's a life that's unfaithful to him. It's sin. Luke chapter 11 gives an abbreviated and, and kind of a paraphrased version of this prayer. And as he's kind of paraphrasing what was said here, what he says is, forgive us our sin. We understand that when Christ said debt, what he meant was forgive what I owe you, forgive sin in my life. Our sin places us in a sense of moral obligation to God. Moral obligation to God is what is implied by this, this use of the word debt. When I sin on a daily basis, I owe God something. A lot of times in interacting with each other, if I were to sin against you or do something wrong, at some point I would have to come up to you. And it's a term that we throw around a lot. I would say, hey, I owe you an apology, right? We're familiar with that term. I owe you an apology. In other words, I've done something that has placed me in a debt to you. I've done something against you and therefore I owe you an apology. The terminology here is very much the same. The indebtedness that we have towards God because of our sin is that we need to seek forgiveness. We quite literally owe God an apology for sinning against him. We are to ask for the forgiveness of sins. This should be a regular prayer in our life. If you're a believer and you know that your sin is an offense to God, then when we do it, we should regular, regularly be asking for forgiveness. But this, this raises an interesting question in this, in this text. A question that I had upon initially reading it. And that was, are my sins already forgiven? I mean, we, we, we believe that Jesus paid it all, right? 
It was paid at the cross. My sins are forgiven. So why would I be in debt to God when I sin? Why would I have to continually ask for forgiveness? I think to understand this, we need to, we need to see that, yes, that is true. At the point of salvation, your sins were forgiven. Past, present, and future. Covered by Christ. That is called justification. One point in time. Sins are covered. Sins are forgiven. And yet, we still sin. We still fall away. I think that the continual repentance, asking for forgiveness of sin, what that is, is that that's really sanctification. That's you growing in your relationship with God. Your sins were forgiven, all of them. But in that you and I continue to sin, we realize that that is an offense to God. And in our sanctification, we repent of our daily sin. See, what's being talked about here, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sin. It's not justification. It's not the one time that that, that we are praying. This is a continual prayer for our daily sins. A continual prayer of repentance that we have sinned against God and we seek forgiveness because of it. I would argue that this is one of the more significant aspects of salvation in your life. The believer is to be sensitive to sin. They hate the sin that is in their life. They confess it. We know that at salvation, we don't stop sinning. But the one who is saved now hates their sin. They they despise it. They've had a heart change. They're sensitive to their sin and they repent of it. They seek forgiveness. Paul Washer said, one of the greatest evidences of true conversion is not sinless perfection. As some have erroneously supposed. Instead. It's sensitivity to sin. Transparency before God regarding sin. And open confession of sin. To the believer. When sin is in their life. They confess it. Because they know that their sin is against God. And so the question of why do I need to confess sin really shows a lack of sensitivity towards sin. A lack of the heart that we are supposed to have post-conversion of, of hatred for our sin, sensitivity to it, and constantly seeking forgiveness for it. Jesus continues the second half of that verse, verse 12. He says, as we also have forgiven our debtors, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Why is this included? This really isn't seen anywhere else in this prayer. It's, it's comparative terminology that we see there. Forgive us our sin. Just like I've forgiven other people's sin. Forgive us our sin just like, just as I've forgiven someone else. Comparative. Asking God to forgive us based on, compared to, the forgiveness that I've given to others. This is a little bit difficult. I think that what's happening here is that this is a claim of legitimacy. 
The prayer really with this comparative terminology is, look, I have forgiven others. God, please forgive me. Now, that sounds initially like we're earning God's forgiveness, doesn't it? God, look, look how well I've done at forgiving others. You, you have to forgive me too. That's how it can come across. And yet, I think when we look at this, we see the heart of what is going on here. Throughout the sermon, there is a tone of your works show your salvation. Your actions show your true character. In chapter 7, it says that you will be judged according to how you judge others. Here it says, you will be forgiven according to how you forgive others. So you and I can legitimately say, God, I am a forgiver. Forgive me. Now, this is a little bit difficult. So jump down because Christ actually exposits this for us in verses 14 and 15. Let's look down at it. Verses 14 and 15 of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus continues after the prayer is closed to keep commenting on it. He says, for if you forgive others for their transgression... Your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. In other words, I think here's what's being communicated here. You can't expect on a daily basis to be reconciled to God. If you're not reconciled to the people around you. You can't expect on a daily basis to come to God for forgiveness if you're not willing to forgive others. In fact, I think we could even go so far as to say, if you are not reconciled to those around you, then you are not reconciled to God. You can't be. The clear pattern in the book of Matthew is that believers are forgivers. Believers forgive. In other words, if you aren't a forgiver then you're not a believer. Said another way, a sign of your forgiveness is your forgiveness of others. This is the impact, one of the many impacts that salvation has upon our life. And so an appropriate question for us to ask ourselves here is, am I a forgiver? Because Christ says, if you forgive others for their transgression, then your heavenly father is going to forgive you. So am I a forgiver? Or do I tend to be someone that that would hold a grudge? Do I tend to be someone that would hold something against someone? Believers forgive and seek forgiveness on a daily basis. Fifth topic of biblical prayer is that we are to pray for the protection from evil. We are to pray for the protection of evil. Christ says in verse 13, we are to pray and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Don't lead us into temptation. Again, we see an interesting request. The word there for temptation, it can really mean either temptation or trial. It's used in the New Testament differently in different scenarios. Sometimes it means temptation that scripture tells us comes from, from Satan. Other times it comes from, other times it means a trial which can come from God. So we have to ask ourselves, what is being communicated here? And there's a little bit of a difficulty in coming to an answer on that. In one sense, God doesn't tempt us, right? James tells us that. God does not tempt. 
So why would I pray God don't lead me into temptation when he's not the one that tempts me? On the other hand, the book of James also tells us that trials are a good thing. They come directly from God to make us complete, to make us perfect. And so we ask again, well, why would I pray that God doesn't put me in a situation that would draw me closer to him? I think that the answer to what is going on at the heart of this request is that this is, again, a request that shows sensitivity to sin. Whether this is translated temptation or trial, however, I think it could be taken as both here. Difficult, hard times. What's represented here is that I know my tendency towards sin. I know that I am so prone to wander. And so the prayer is, God, please don't lead me into into a situation where I would be drawn away by my own lusts. Keep me far from my tendency to sin. I know I'm weak. I know I wander. Keep me from the danger of myself. Keep me from a situation where I would tend to fall. The hard issue here is that it shows again a sensitivity to sin. He moves on and says, but deliver us from evil. So we see that there's really two halves to this. One is a request, don't lead me into temptation. In other words, don't guide me towards it. Even don't don't carry me into temptation. But rather, on the flip side of that, deliver me from evil. Rescue me from it. Pull me away from it. Deliver me from evil. Don't lead me into, into these times, but rather deliver me from my tendency to wander. It's almost, you know, we could use a picture of, of sheep. And, and the request could be framed like this. Please don't lead me towards the edge of the mountain. Because I know I tend to wander. I know my tendencies may lead me to fall over. But if I am there, because I tend to get there pretty easily, rescue me. Deliver me from it. Don't lead me into it, but deliver me from it. And what we see represented here is such a good heart awareness. I mean, the request quite simply is, God, let my desires, my passions, my affections, my wants, my needs, let it all be you. I am weak. Deliver me from my propensity to evil. Keep me focused on you. Keep me living for you. Don't lead me towards sin. Deliver me from evil. But we don't pray that very often. It's because we try to beat our sinful tendencies on our own. When you don't pray, what, 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 you're, what you're doing is you're telling God, I got this. I have this under control. I can fight this battle against sin on my own. Maybe the reason that that we find ourselves failing so much in the flesh is that we're battling flesh with flesh. We're not coming to God and asking him to deliver us from our tendency towards sin. Don't fight the battle on your own. Come to God. He has commanded us to pray for this. So when you feel temptation, pray. 
before you go about your day, pray that God keeps you from sin. When you see temptation coming from afar, pray. Fight your sin in the power of the one who conquered sin. By praying for his guidance and for his help. Christ closes this prayer with the words, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This is a kind of a unique section here. There's good evidence to support that this may have been added later into this text. This, this closing was a Jewish tradition to, to, to prayer. To, to close a prayer in saying, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever. Amen. That's why some of your Bibles may have brackets around that phrase. And so what we see here may not, may not have originally been there when Christ said that. But what we do see is really an appropriate desire. It's a great summary of this, of this prayer. It's God, it's, it's all yours. The power, the kingdom, the glory, it's all you. So how's your relationship with God? I think that a key in answering that question is how is your prayer life? Does it match? Where can you grow in these topics of biblical prayer that Christ has given us? Are your desires aligned with the desires that Jesus told us should be expressed in our prayers? Do you pray for the glory of God? Do you pray for the coming of the kingdom, the provision of needs, the forgiveness of sins, the protection from evil? Would you say, as the Jews echoed, God, it's all yours. The kingdom, the power, the glory, it's all you. And if you do pray this, does it show up in your life as well? Because we can't remove this from the greater scheme of what Christ is communicating. Hypocritical prayer. Don't let this prayer be consistent, but your life not back up what you have prayed. Christ is combating in this text hypocritical righteousness. A believer's prayer should represent how Christ said we should pray. And a believer's life should support the requests that he gives to God. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, there's such clear direction and instruction for your word on how we are to pray. I pray that this prayer would be a mark of our prayer life. Lord, that we would Mimic these topics that Christ has given us, that they would become a staple in our lives to bring our requests before you. And that ultimately that our desire would be for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.